Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Generation Elect. You know we're heading into a pivotal point of election season once the conventions start coming. And for the last four days, we saw the Democratic National Convention nominating Joe Biden for president. And we'll review what we thought about that. First, though, we'll also today give our state of the race, where we analyze where the presidential and Senate races are and who's most likely to win from this point forward. Joining me on this August afternoon is Griffin Roeder. Hey, Griffin. Hey, Henry. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How about you? Oh, I'm doing pretty well as well. That's good to hear. Also with me is Jack. Hi, Jack. Hey, Jack Hey. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So the big story this week was the convention. But before we dip into the intricacies and all that we saw from the last four nights, let's start off the conversation by talking broadly where the presidential race stands. Right now, with no uh, visual con- like, um seem to be where they are. Uh, Griffin, is this a sign that Joe Biden's had a, had a strong lead for three months in the polls? Is this a sign that he can maintain this and be consistent, unlike Hillary Clinton four years ago? Griffin? Oh, um, I think Biden, um, he's held the lead for quite a few months now. Uh, I think it's very early to observe a pre, like a post-convention bump. They'll have to wait a few days before polling really seriously indicates it. Um, but uh, for now, I would say Joe Biden is favored to win the presidency. Yeah. So, um, what states are pivotal at this point? Do you think Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania are right now the swing states that he needs to win? Yeah, I the think most? he'll do that. He's um, ahead in Pennsylvania by much more than Clinton was. He's ahead in Michigan by much more than Clinton was. Um, He also, he's about where Clinton was in Wisconsin, though. Wisconsin's actually a bit of a tricky one. Wisconsin is the closest of the three pivotal Rust Belt states. Uh, If anything, Trump would be the most, uh, would most likely win Wisconsin if he were to win one of those states. However, given how Wisconsin voted in 2018 when they elected uh, a Democratic governor, they got rid of Scott Walker. They handily re-elected their senator, who was a Democrat. And earlier this year, I believe, there was a state like Supreme Court election. And uh, the Democrat won unexpectedly over a conservative Republican. So I'd say even though... it probably will be close. Biden is favored in Wisconsin. Yeah. Yes, can you guys yes. hear me well right now? Sorry. Okay, great. So, um, yeah, Jack, uh, has a, do you think Joe Biden's uh, standing in the electoral map has changed at all since we last talked about it? Uh, or are, I mean, I is think he more it's pretty the same? similar. Uh, if anything, he's improved after his uh, strong convention performance. Uh, so I, I think we're still uh, <clears throat> optimistic here, and I don't see the polls having shifted in Trump's favor uh, at all. Yeah, are you getting more? Uh, I remember last time we talked about the Southern states, you were not very, uh, you were a bit pessimistic about Florida. Do you still think that Florida is not a state where Biden is I the still outright think favorite? Trump is in? Gonna it's win much Florida. more close than that. I do. Griffin, your thoughts on um, the race in Florida? I would say Trump state. wins Florida, but it will be very close like it was in 2016. One thing I was very surprised to see on Twitter 
was there was a um, all these golf carts were full of like Biden supporters. They were driving by in the villages. The villages. That's where elections yeah. are decided. Yes. Well, Florida is. Uh, there are two demographics where um, Democrats, if they win both, they win Florida, and that is senior citizens and the Cuban population. And if that's why we were so worried about Bernie Sanders, who is um, who wouldn't fare well in those demographics in Florida, who you know support does not derive from there. But Joe Biden, I think, is the best candidate in that state uh, out of everyone who could have been nominated. So I am feeling optimistic about Florida. I would say that Biden. If you had to rank percentages out of 100, I do think that Biden is the favorite in Florida, but it's still a very close state. I don't think he's going to win North Carolina. I don't think he's going to win Georgia. And I still think his success will lie in the Rust Belt. But Florida could very well good place for him to be. Um, Griffin, do you see Trump's path to victory closing? What is his best way to get into 270 at this point? Okay, so he's going to have to hold almost every single state that he won last time. Uh well, Texas, if he loses Texas, uh, if any Republican loses Texas, then they're done. Um, Arizona, I think he'll have to win Arizona. I think Arizona is a very key swing state. In fact, if I could look forward into the future and look how one state voted, I would probably choose Arizona because um, Arizona is just such a key swing state. I think Arizona could really be like the bellwether state. Of this election, it could, um, it could definitely be the tipping. Florida, point. he needs Georgia, North Carolina, and one one of the Rust Belt states. And I'd probably say his best shot would be Wisconsin. And he has to hold yeah. Iowa and Ohio, of course. Um, out of the states, Clinton won. Is there one you think he can flip? Ooh, in Minnesota or Nevada? Minnesota or Nevada? Okay, so. I think you mentioned something about Minnesota earlier to me. Uh, I'll address that yeah, later. Yeah, even respond um, to that. <laughs> yeah. So I wouldn't really see Nevada because Nevada has a growing Hispanic population, growing uh, suburbs of Las Vegas. Uh, Reno, Reno, Nevada went to Clinton. And overall, I don't think Trump has great odds in Nevada. Uh, Maine. I think, interestingly enough, Maine might actually be Trump's best bet because much of Maine huh. voted. Maine voted heavily for Barack Obama twice. Voted for Kerry. Voted for Gore. Very strongly Democratic state, and Trump almost won it. He came very close. And Maine is a very populous state. Like uh, a lot of blue collar voters, uh, white working class voters. That could have been seen as, like, red meat for Trump. Now, obviously, it's probably not going to be the case this time around. Uh, Also, Maine's a pretty small state anyways. It's only four electoral votes, which is not, yeah, yeah, very few. Yeah. um, Jack, if you're the Trump campaign, is all of your energy going into maintaining the surprise wins and the Rust Belt that he got four years ago? I mean... The issue is there's not really a ton of move, uh, ton of states to expand on. I don't see him doing particular, particularly uh, well in some of the four uh, key states we mentioned. But there's not a lot of places where he can reallocate that funding uh, to make up for his losses. So, yeah, I think the best strategy right now is trying to um, appeal to those states. And 
even though I think it's pretty false and I think it's misleading, I think his strategy of trying to paint Biden as, uh, you know, being manipulated by the radical left is one of the only options he has at this point. And I guess it makes sense from a strategic standpoint. Yeah, I mean, there was so much uh, content material on Hillary Clinton. I I didn't agree with any of it, but you could. um, But with Hillary Clinton, you know, you had all these, you had Benghazi, you had the emails, you had so many avenues to, um, you know, attack Hillary Clinton on. That's why Donald Trump won, because uh, voters were sick of the Clinton fatigue. Voters were sick of, you know, uh, a lot of people thought that the Clinton family was, you know, written in scandal and corruption. But with Joe Biden, he's almost a perfect candidate for this because there's no... I mean, the Ukraine avenue was kind of squashed a few months ago when that all led to impeachment. And there's no visible attack lane on Joe Biden that I can really see. Um, You know, I think Donald Trump is still struggling to find a message. And uh, radical left is a very weak one that I don't think will be that effective. But let's see how that turns out. Um, So, uh, yeah, before we uh, move on to uh, our second part of the state of the race, where we talk about Senate races, uh, Griffin... uh, what is your prediction for the electoral map? Is Biden going to get past 270 here? Uh, I think he will. I'd probably say Biden wins uh, the three Rust Belt states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, um, and Arizona. Jack, are you more along the Pretty same lines? Yeah. Yeah, I would, um, I would say Biden wins three Rust Belt states. I, I think he wins Arizona. I think he wins Florida. Um, and I think he wins the all-important Nebraska State Oh, yes, district. that too. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, that's my prediction. But uh, looking good for Joe Biden. It's a, it's a good sign for him that he's kept this consistent sense. What's it been? Like May, I think, where, he's, where he began that lead in the polls. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so the presidency, uh, more be- better news for the Democrats than Republicans. But uh, let's talk about the Senate. Last time we talked about the Senate, we were kind of, uh, pessimistic about the Democrats' chances. Best case scenario, we thought was 50-50. Um, Griffin, is there any reason to believe that Democrats' chances have gotten better? I wouldn't really say so. Um, I don't think, uh, if you look in Iowa, I think uh, recent polling has shown that Ernst, uh, the Republican, is getting back in the lead. Uh, there hasn't been like a significant uh, Democratic in- in any of the key Senate races. I mean, they're definitely going to win Colorado and Arizona. I could see them winning there. Yeah. They're probably going to have to triage Doug Jones and Alabama. Um, North Carolina, they're holding steady. I think Maine also, they're holding steady. But there hasn't been like a significant surge in a particular state or states. Yeah. Uh, we talked about those four states. Uh, Jack, do you, st- do you still think Steve Bullock has a hint of a chance? I'm there in still Montana? holding out hope for Steve Bullock. Uh, I mean, some of the most recent polls show it's a pretty close race. Uh, one had Danes up by six points, 50 to 44, but another had him up only by two. Uh, I think, you know, he has a great track record in that state. He's very, very popular. So if there was a candidate, uh, a Democrat to win statewide office for the Senate in Montana. I think there's a good chance that it would be Bullock. Could I add something yeah, on prob- to that? Sure. I think uh, the Green Party just got uh, removed from the ballot in Montana as well. And the Green Party, yeah. um, many Democrats don't like the Green Party because they accuse the Green Party of taking votes from them. Yep. 
Well, the Libertarian Party also got removed. They take votes from Republicans, too, so I don't know if that'll just uh, even it out a bit more. But um, I think Steve Bullock is the underdog. I think it's like a lean Republican race yeah, right now. Yeah, I agree. But yeah. I would not count him out. He's, I would not count him out. But um, no, I am feeling more optimistic about Maine with Senator Susan Collins. Uh, she's not in the best uh, financially-wise. She is being outspent by Sarah Gideon, who's a very popular uh, Speaker of the House in Maine. And... If I, no, if I had to bet on that, I would say that Sarah Gideon wins that race, um, especially if uh, the trend continues of Senate races going the same way of presidential races in the state. If Biden takes Maine by 10, 20 points, it would be hard to see uh, Susan Collins sneak out a win there, personally. North Carolina, though, is more of a toss-up with Cal Cunningham and Tom Tillis. So overall, I'd say, um, do you think, uh, if you were an odds maker, Griffin, the Democrats have a better chance of taking the Senate? Right now, I'd probably say the Republicans hold the Senate 51-49. Democrats would take Colorado, Arizona, North Carolina. Actually, wait, scrap that. 50-50. I'll add Maine to the list. Um, Republicans take Alabama. Uh, so it's a 50-50 Senate. Really, it would deter- like whoever's the vice president would have to be a tiebreaker. Yeah, Jack, are you, um, yeah, my, you think mine we win those changed. four I, states and lose in Montana? I still think... I, well, I yeah. think, uh, you know, some of these states are uh, safeties for each other. Uh, you know, if we if we lose uh, one of those four states, I think Montana could definitely come into play. But I still would predict 50-50 as I did last time, and it all comes down to the uh, presidential election. No, I definitely would like to see more Democratic spending in Iowa because that could be a good campaign and georgia is getting competitive too the one that we're doing well in uh well there is a competitive uh senate primary though that's happening very soon over next door neighbors massachusetts yeah let's actually let's talk about this so i um so yeah we haven't really discussed this on the pod much but uh massachusetts uh i think uh uh two-term senator ed markey is Mm -hmm. running for re-election but he's being primaried by uh joe kennedy who um, would not be in this race if his last name was not Kennedy. I, I assure you that. But um, he is the grandson of Bobby Kennedy. And uh, Joe Kennedy is um, really giving him a nail-biter. I think the latest polls I've seen are, like, they're neck and neck. They, are like, have the same percentage. But it's, like, 50-50 pretty much. But, um, no, it's all about the experienced veteran being taken on by the young kid who is kind of an upstart. Nancy Pelosi endorsed Joe Kennedy, surprisingly, while all the senators, even Joe Manchin, the moderate a Democratic senator is on Ed Markey's side. So Bernie Sanders I mean, is not actually Bernie Sanders yeah, refused to make an endorsement. I did see that. Makes but sense um, Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders. So Massachusetts primary, I watched the debate yeah. and I will say that in the debate, um, Ed Markey. So Joe Kennedy was a bit more impressive in the debate, but he still could not answer the question why he's trying to run for the seat and for an incumbent to lose to a primary challenger, there needs to be a strong reason why that incumbent needs to be replaced. And I see no problem with Ed Markey at this point. Griffin, uh, do you think Ed Markey's going to pull this out? I think it would be a surprise. I think uh, Ed Markey could narrowly pull it out. He's going to have to win heavily in Western Massachusetts where there are like small towns like artistic communities. Uh, I think he's going to win in sort of like the manufacturing-based towns, uh, a lot of blue-collar workers. 
I think Kennedy would probably do better in like the more affluent um, suburban areas, especially around Boston. Although probably like Cambridge, where like Harvard, MIT is. Uh, I think Markey would win there. And also, additionally, there are some like Democratic House incumbents in Massachusetts that are facing primary challenges themselves, experienced ones. And it's kind of the opposite of the Senate race. Instead of the incumbent being progressive, the incumbents are more moderate and they have progressive primary challengers. There's one in uh, Lynch, who's in uh, the 8th district, which is like south of Boston, more suburban. There's a progressive primary challenge there. And also a bit closer to home, uh, the western Massachusetts 1st district. This one's probably gotten more attention it's uh, Richard Neal versus Alex Morse. Alex Morse is Mayor uh, Holyoke. And that's a real nail-biter because you have an experienced incumbent, someone who's spent three decades in politics, more of a moderate Democrat, facing a very young, I think he's only like 30, uh, 30-year-old primary challenger who's mayor of uh, Holyoke. So that's a race to watch. And I guess Morse, who's uh, the progressive primary challenger, He's trying to win where Marky's winning. I, it's like codependency. Uh, yeah, I did hear about Alex Morse. He's interesting character. He like ran for mayor of his hometown. He was like 19 or 20, pretty much. He's done a good yeah. job. But um, yeah, so let's see. Uh, back to the Kennedy-Markey race. Uh, Jack, who do you think would be a better senator? Well, do you not really care? Yeah, I mean, between... to, to, this is a race that I... Don't, I'm not really backing a specific candidate. Uh, I would say that as far as predictions go, I'm not one to uh, predict against a Kennedy. So I do think that Joe Kennedy will pull this out. But I, I got to say that, um, you know, the one clip I, I saw from the debate uh, was Markey challenging uh, Kennedy on his like super PACs and the amount of money his father is donating. And I thought that was a pretty good attack. And then obviously I watched, um, and I think you did as well, Henry, uh, a recent Markey ad that was really pretty powerful. And even though yeah. I didn't agree with a lot of the messages, it was still a really good ad. But like I said, no, I I'm still back in Kennedy great. to win. Yeah. Um, Markey, I think, uh, I feel bad for Markey in a way. He's doing so many, like during the debate, he's talking about all the projects he's working on in the Senate, often, cr- often crossing party lines to work with the Republicans to, you know, you know, um, work on technological things, work on education, and he's just being primaried by Joe Kennedy, who hasn't made persuasive argument for why he deserves to take the seat from Markey. But um, no, it's, a, it's one of the most fascinating races, and I am counting down the days till September 1st when yeah. uh, we find out who's going to win that one. But I mean, if a yeah, senator it's... loses this, uh, like, if a senator loses in a primary this year, it's kind of like an exclamation point to what's happened, because... So many house incumbents have gone down. Like Ross Spano yeah. just went down in Florida. So we're at uh, we're at eight incumbents. Um, there are two in Massachusetts that are facing tough primary challenges. So potentially ten and a Senate incumbent. Like th- it's this is historic. fascinating stuff. It's fascinating yeah. stuff. But um, I maybe if Warren gets a place in Biden's cabinet, the loser will get the Senate seat. But uh, let's see about that. Yeah. So. Um, that's pretty much what the race outlook looks like uh, in the presidential and Senate uh, domains uh, for now. Not much has changed since in the past week, but I'm sure 
polls will fluctuate, forecasts will differ, and there will be a lot of news, especially as debates start coming in for the Senate races. I'm looking forward to those. But let's um, move on to what really is the the big story of the week, and that is um, Monday was, um, a, was the Democratic National Convention. Most famous Democrats speaking in the country, all uh, speaking in favor of Joe Biden, but unlike every other convention, which has been done in a packed hall, um, you know, with lots of cheering and a huge crowd, COVID has made it virtual with all the speakers addressing uh, the uh, Jack, did you like uh, how they pulled it off from a virtual? I thought it was actually pretty amazing. I, I applaud uh, the planners of this event so much because as far as virtual events go, it was one of the best I could have imagined. Uh, there were specific elements that I really liked, uh, including like the roll call from each state. I thought that was great. Uh, and honestly, it's hard to imagine going back to a regular convention after this because I liked it better than 2016 in a lot of ways. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I'm probably the minority when I say that there is some there is there are good things about, you know, a packed convention hall, getting everyone really excited, all the balloons dropping down. Um, I wish they had done what they do in soccer games, add some fake crowd noise. But uh, it was it was an interesting virtual experiment. I, and I was skeptical of how it would work. But I, I do have to give a shout out to the production team, like four nights of long coverage, you know, no technical errors. It was really well done honest, if you wanted to do it virtual. And it was seamless the way they transitioned between all the candidates. Honestly, I found it far more interesting than convention in the past. I think because, you know, it was a shorter format and uh, the speeches were obviously much shorter, even Biden's lasted only about 24 minutes, uh, partially because there's no breaks or applause. And I actually really kind of like that because yeah. uh, candidates really had to, you know, cut down to the real uh, root of their messaging and give concise and, you know, enter entertaining uh, TV. Definitely. Before we delve deep into, you know, Biden's big, big address, which we all have a lot of thoughts on. Uh, Griffin, was there a moment that stood out to you? in this convention okay um one thing that i actually like to see was there was that uh point where all the several of the former candidates for uh the democratic nomination were all together in like a forum type it was like warren yeah. yang Buttigieg, klobuchar sanders booker i i really like that because it just made them seem like it, it seems so real. They looked like actual people out there. They didn't look like politicians. They just seemed much more relatable and uh, more human than usual. And with Cory Booker leading the discussion, yeah. it's always going to be enthralling and fun because and, he's just a, he's yep. an amazing <laughs> quirky Booker's guy. like, oh my goodness. You know Although, it. He's a people person. He's great, yeah. I, I hope that his uh, presidential career is not over in terms of running for that office but because he would do a great job. But um, no, Booker very charismatic guy and he gave a very chaotic speech um the one moment that really stood out for me it was on monday night it wasn't really talked about that much but it was really just a highlight that a lot of people are forgetting about and it was the it's a compilation of the amtrak conductors uh yeah. talking about uh, being on a train with joe biden every day for years and you know these conductors talking about how they'd see biden on the train how he'd talk with them for hours how joe biden called them when their wife was sick or when you know like they needed something from him and it just showed a side of joe biden that 
I think is the side this week stressed and the side and it's the side of Joe Biden that people love that he reaches out to everybody that he takes everybody seriously that although he's like a Washington insider for 50 years he doesn't consider himself above the common people and he like values them and you know you also saw it with like the elevator operator yep. who um spoke with Joe Biden saying like Joe Biden was the nicest politician I operate the elevator for he, like he like makes time to talk to me and it's just the Democratic National Convention did such a good job of showing that side of Joe Biden. Do you think that resonates into enthusiasm, enthusiasm and passion for him? I do. Jack? And uh, uh, along with those two things that you mentioned, also the uh, Braden Harrington uh, yeah. about the young boy with a, a stutter who was inspired by Biden and Biden gave him his personal phone number and walked him through strategies that Biden himself had used. I think that was great. I think you know, come like a month or two down the line, most people who watch the convention aren't going to remember the specific clips about the side of Biden, but they were going to remember how it made them feel overall and how it made them feel about Biden and what a genuinely nice, honest and caring guy he is. Right. It's just, I don't think we've ever seen a politician like it, you know, just the way that he gives his personal phone number out to anybody who needs it, how he just connects and he remembers everyone. It's just a great phenomenon. And I'm so glad it just like made me so happy that not only we have a strong candidate against Trump, but that that candidate is Joe Biden personally. Um, I mean, Griffin, did you uh, see the parts where uh, Jill Biden and his kids and his grandchildren, grandchildren all talked? It was really like a family narrative, especially on the second day. Um, Do you think uh, playing like, the idea of Joe Biden as a family man, which he definitely is, but like emphasizing his family uh, is a good lane for the campaign to go on. Yes, I think it is because many Americans are like part of a family. There are many American adults who have kids. I mean, my parents have kids, of course. Uh, And oftentimes there can be a tendency. And I'm not like saying this as a hasty generalization, but sometimes there are families that are generally uh, more conservative, support more family-oriented values. However, I think, like, Biden, by showing how close he is to his family, um, like, a very loving, caring family, I think he can kind of, like, soften the hearts of many voters, in my opinion. That I think it's, yeah, I mean, I think it's almost like a rebuke to... Uh, um conservative tendency which was like conservatives for 50 years used to be the party of family values you know like structured family everybody's in school everybody's really like you know uh together as a family like you know we value these things but donald trump is not that guy a guy with like multiple affairs and marriages it's like it's it's been a um a rebuke to the republican so um i do want to transition this into like this is joe biden emphasizing something republicans have hold or conservatives have held dear to their hearts for a while. And I just wonder if it was a play to get more moderate Republican votes, along with having people like John Kasich and Colin Powell and Meg Whitman talk. Um, Jack, do you think that the DNC was right to spend a lot of energy convincing moderate Republicans to go over for Biden? Um, 100%. In addition to the the family values that you talked about, I think there was a decent amount of emphasis uh, Biden placed on his uh, Catholic faith. Which, again, right. Donald Trump is not a very religious man, uh, despite the fact that a lot of evangelical Christians love him. And I think that was another, uh, Biden talking about, you know, God and faith a lot was another play 
obviously it comes from his heart. That's a difference, but it was, I bet it appeals to a lot of those kind of voters. And Biden's overall message was one of unity. And as he mentioned directly in his speech, this isn't him against Trump. You know, this isn't, uh, you know, very hateful opposition. It's a big tent and it's about restoring the soul of America. And when he does that, I think he kind of restricts Trump's ability uh, to just say it's a between him and Biden and us versus them. And Biden's really crafting a more uh, inclusive message, which I do think will resonate. Right. I do think it was, I mean, all these like Trump supporting conservatives on social media saying, oh, John Kasich speaking won't change a single vote. But no, I think that it, I mean, I think that it will sway some people. And that is a really good thing. I think you've never seen more people endorse the member, endorse someone from the opposing party than this election, I think, ever in history. So I am glad that they reached out to uh, conservatives in that way, even though John Kasich's speech was a pretty comical at times but um uh griffin do you need to head out now i know um, you're saying that you might need to cut out a bit early uh, yes i will have to head out uh it was a pleasure doing the pod today see you guys always Thanks. great that's great to talk yeah. to you anyways um yeah so it's just uh to us um but yeah so you're talking about a big tent uh do you think that uh how much progressive involvement was there at the convention could they have done a bit more in terms of getting people like ayanna presley in I mean, you really only had AOC as like... Right, so you... Ayanna Presley, first, like, just using her as an First of all, these people... As example. ...are, are yeah. freshman Congress people, and they feel oh, entitled. I mean, a- AOC has a national brand. All right, <laughs> fine. I understand that. But, you know, most of the people speaking earned their place. They were veteran Democratic... Uh, you know, lawmakers. And I don't see that as a bad thing. Yeah. That's what it is. And Bernie Sanders got a keynote speech. Um, AOC obviously got to nominate him. And I thought that was good enough. If we had elevated the voices of the whole squad, then our efforts to bring in moderate voters would have been completely expunged because uh, the progressives represent the extremes of our party and exactly what moderate Republicans don't want and why they're actually considering electing Joe Biden. Yeah, that is probably true. Um, it's such a fragile balance trying to keep progressives on board while still um, you know, making them happy and trying to get moderate Republicans on there at the same time. I, I said last podcast and I said again, I, I would have given AOC uh, more time than 60 seconds, uh, especially when you're giving like John Kerry and Bill Clinton four minutes. But like um, overall, the, this is it's it's a message that Biden is not a progressive nominee. And that's not the route that the Democratic Party wants to go on. And I support it. But in the end, I'm not sure that they could have done a bit more. But I, I'm more with you that uh I mean, but if, do you think if, people if, like John Kerry and Bill Clinton are necessary, though? Did, I think their John speeches Kerry, were forgettable I, at best. Sure, but a lot of speeches were forgettable. To be, I mean, honest, yeah. AOC's speech was forgettable. Though, yeah. I mean, it's... Yeah, probably. probably. But I would say, yeah, I, I think John Kerry was a good inclusion. And I think, uh, you know, he's very involved in, like, climate change. Uh, former Secretary Fine. of State, former candidate. I think that was good. Bill Clinton, you know, not... Not the best idea, potentially, given uh, 
certain scandals potentially surrounding Epstein and then obviously his affair while in office. Uh, but I, I still thought he had a pretty good speech, actually. So, you know, I, I probably wouldn't have. Yeah, if him, I was. Though, but I understand. I understand arguments not to have him talk. But um, no, I mean, he means a lot to kind of an old Southern Democrat type who wants to feel enthused about the ticket. So he's, it's probably good having some kind of representation there. And of course, Hillary Clinton, too, who is a is retired. But I guess you kind of have to have her. You can't really not have a convention without her. But she did a, she she did a fine job, a, I think, a in better her speech. speech than I thought she would have. So I'll give her credit for that. Yeah. I mean, you know, one uh, establishment retired guy who had a very good speech, I thought, and I'm being completely uh, unbiased here, was Mike, was Mike Bloomberg. Mike Bloomberg did, did a very good job. I think he, um, I mean, he opened his speech by saying, like, I want to appeal to Democrats, independents, and Republicans. And this is a guy who has belonged to yes. all three parties. Yeah. Uh, not, not three parties, but he's also very on the norm in terms of gun control and climate change, which are uh, two of the most pressing issues for Democrats. So he speaks from a place where I don't think anybody else can. And he delivered a really supportive speech uh, in favor of Joe Biden. So I thought that was a plus, Mike Bloomberg's inclusion. Yeah, I thought it was good. Uh, was there, yeah, it, it was It was interesting. Was there one speaker that uh, stood out to you, did a better job than you thought, like a senator or well, I, someone uh, from somewhere? I thought uh, on Monday, uh, Governor Cuomo did a pretty good job. Uh, I thought some of his analogies uh, during his speech were, were pretty uh, poignant. Uh, so I, I like that. Uh, besides him, obviously, I thought President Barack Obama did a remarkable job. Uh, I think because we've been conditioned yeah. in the last four years to not expect uh, harsh criticisms from Obama, uh, he's normally tried to remain pretty neutral about the current president seeing him go out on the attack in the official, eloquent, intelligent, decent uh, way that Obama really embodies, I-, I really enjoyed that. And I thought it was one of the highlights. Yeah, you think it's, um, I know where I stand on this, but you think it's completely fine for a former president to uh, deliver like a scathing rebuke of a sitting yes, president? Yeah, for sure. If it's, if, it, if it's, you know, if it's a theme necessary. Yeah, I would definitely agree. Um, no, I thought Michelle Obama's speech, actually, uh, Monday, the Monday night keynote speech was one of the highlights of the whole week. Um, and you look at the Republican convention coming up next week, there is nobody in the Republican Party who can inspire people the same way that Michelle Obama can. And she is one of the most useful tools that the Democrats have. She's a guaranteed like jackpot, pretty much. And fundraising went up for Joe Biden after her speech. It was quite a moment. Um, do you think that Michelle and Barack Obama on the campaign trail, I guess it's now virtual events, but do you think that if you're Joe Biden's team, you try to include them? 100%. Wherever, which way possible. 100%. Yeah. There's two big assets. Um, and not to mention that generally people have pretty positive views of the Obama administration. Uh, and continuing to include Joe Biden in the presence of the Obamas underscores uh, his part in making the Obama administration uh, a success. Definitely, definitely. It was, um, no, it's uh, painting Joe Biden as someone who was, you know, a servant of the, of the incredibly popular Obama administration. And Obama's probably the most well-liked guy, not on the country, but on the planet right now. And it's just like, he's, um, he's a great tool for Joe Biden to use. He's the most articulate 
speaker in politics, uh, hands down. And Michelle Obama was fantastic as well with her with her criticisms and the way she constructed her speech. So that was that was really nice. I want to talk about who followed right after Barack Obama, uh, Kamala Harris, who delivered her first big speech as the VP nominee. Now she's panned as one of the leaders of the party. Do you think the speech matched the moment? To be honest, I'm not, I'm not so sure. I, I thought her speech was fine. I, agree. I don't think it was very remarkable. Uh, as I think you mentioned to me that Obama uh, decided to go before her. And I think part of the reason why he attacked Trump so much was because he wanted to give Kamala a chance to really focus on herself and advocate herself to the American people. And I, I thought she did an all right job, but it certainly was pretty forgettable. Uh, out of the keynotes, it was near the bottom, in my opinion. Yeah, it was. Um, it, I mean, it was. It was yeah, well, it's not. Nothing it wasn't bad. Wrong with it. Was it. Just not, but it's, you know, I feel like there there was an opportunity to make it a memorable speech, not like a Mario Cuomo, Barack Obama classic convention speech, but one of the highlights. And she, I don't know, she talked about a lot. She talked a lot about her life story, but I didn't really see a vision for the nation that she had. I saw that a lot more in Joe Biden's speech Thursday night than Kamala's speech. Um, I think Kamala's had better moments. Uh, it was a fine speech, though, and she did a good job. I'm, I'm, I don't have any strong opinion on it, but it was... She could have done a bit better. The one person I would have liked um, who really could have painted herself as a rising star of the party was Keisha Lance Bottoms, who spoke on Thursday. And throughout that whole speech, uh, she's the mayor of Atlanta and a, really, in my opinion, one of the best legislators in the Democratic Party. She... Um, she had the chance to make it really memorable, try to, you know, uh, amplify the Black Lives Matter movement. And she did a good job for the most part, but um, it was not the most memorable occasion. You know, speeches, uh, speeches got bad at the moment. They were like, text this to 30330. And, you know, so I do think that overall, um, there were a lot of missed opportunities, but overall, it was a good convention with good speakers. Uh, let's dive into the main event, Joe Biden's speech. Um, have we ever seen a convention speech from a nominee like that? I don't know if we have. Obviously, there's been a ton of great speeches uh, in the history of the DNC, but that was Joe Biden's best speech of his career, hands down. That was yeah. one of, if not the best speeches I've seen uh, in my life. It was completely there for the moment. It was unifying uh, spelled out his policy goals, uh, especially in regards to the co uh, coronavirus pandemic and uh, racial injustice. And it was just overall an amazing speech. And not once did he really fumble his lines or say something wrong or do anything that the Republicans could seize upon. And now you already see them trying to make excuses that, oh, anyone can read off a teleprompter and it was pre-recorded and blah, blah, blah. It's a, it's a low bar to say. Yeah. It's like, oh my goodness. But it's, no, Joe Biden is, the tagline that a lot of Republicans have been using is that Joe Biden is senile, he can't put a sentence together. And just to show you how ridiculous that is, from a report I was reading, apparently Donald Trump went on the phone in the Oval Office with Joe Biden to talk about uh, the structure for the debates coming up in a month. And Joe Biden... I mean, Donald Trump, after the conversation, put down the phone and was like, that guy wasn't senile. What are we talking about? <laughs> but no, it, it shows the ridiculousness of that. Joe Biden is old. He has a stutter. 
but that speech, it was clear. I understood every word. There was no, there was no like word salad, I guess. There were, all the words were completely articulated very well. And it's just, it's just funny to see uh, so many Republicans try to scramble to cover for it. Like, oh, oh, reading off a teleprompter, as you said, or even Rush Limbaugh was saying, oh, that speech is pre-recorded. I spoke to video experts who know that was the case. And I mean, but like, um, I think the Republicans yeah. in a lot of ways, obviously Joe Biden's speech is good, was good in any context, in any situation, but their effort to paint him as senile and not able to string a sentence together worked against them in this speech because he just completely blew those expectations out of the water. I mean, he really just completely disproved that. And that was their number one tagline. So it's hard to see how they transition now. Laura Ingram and Glenn Beck were saying that, you know, um, (laughs) that was a good speech. And it's crazy when you even get an admission from those guys on the right. But um, and Joe Biden also uh, delivered a stunning rebuke to a lot of conservative pundits led by um, the famous Ben Shapiro, who's been leading the idea that Joe Biden's candidacy is not a pro-Joe Biden candidacy. It's an anti-Trump candidacy. And that speech debunked that claim so hard because Joe Biden did not mention Donald Trump's name once in the 24 minutes that he spoke. He didn't like the most he said was the current president. It was not about Donald Trump. It was not about how we need to, you know, um, and this current administration, all the debates last year were just, oh, we need to run against Donald Trump. This administration is terrible. But Joe Biden's speech was a vision for this country. And he spelled it out so well. He wants to restore America's soul. He wants to create his idyllic version of a country, which is peaceful, respectful, loving. Joe Biden answered the question. It took him a year and a half to do it, but he finally answered what his purpose in the race is. Yeah, and, and it was just the best thing. And then immediately after the rousing speech, you know, him going outside in the drive-in event uh, outside with all the uh, car horns honking and people cheering and fireworks going off. I mean, that image is like blazed in my mind and might be the defining image of the Biden campaign. It's just, if this all crashes and fails three months from now, then a lot is going to need to happen in September and October. Because right now, Joe Biden spelled out why he's in this race. He spelled out why he's a transformative candidate. It's just the right guy for the right moment. And it's, he, he not only like said why he wants to be in this race, he, I think in that speech, shaped the democratic and the liberal outlook on the world for the next few decades. It was that transformative. And it was just an incredible moment and made up for all the lackluster um, uh, John Kerry-esque speeches for the past three days. But wow, uh, what a moment. I mean, how does how do the Republicans top that they next can't. week? They, they can't. What are you expecting from that convention? I'm expecting a lot of fun. <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, some of their prime speakers are like the couple who waved guns at oh the Black goodness. Lives Matter protesters, the student who stood in front of the uh, Native Americans protesting, and then oh, uh, that idiot, yeah. And you know, he got a settlement from the Washington Post and CNN, so he'll be there. And obviously, Mike Pence. I mean, even you know, the two top Republicans in the country, Mike Pence and Donald Trump. When you say they're going to be there, I, I don't even think that's you know a good thing. Like, legitimately, they're yeah. not really good presences presences uh compared to the likes of 
Barack Obama and, you know, Michelle Obama. Like, <laughs> I... No, Mike, Plen- Mike Pence is, like, the most bland politician in America. He cannot deliver a speech that had a tenth of the inspiration that Joe Biden had. I don't even know what Donald Trump's case is anymore for electing him for the next four years. Like, he's just going to rant on and on about how Joe Biden's America will result in American carnage. But the last six months where Donald Trump's administration has mishandled everything from the COVID pandemic to race relations, it just shows that Donald Trump is in a destructive spiral downwards. And I don't know how he can settle the flames at all in the speech. When your slogan is keep America great 2020, and America right now is certainly not great. There's major crises going on. 75,000 deaths. Yep. Think about that. Think about it. I, th- I don't even think we like process that I number know. when it's said. That is a crazy amount of people. And if a 65 million people go to the ballot box saying, we're okay with the last four years, let's do another one of that. I mean, I just, it's, it's crazy. It's going to be, have to, Donald Trump's going to have to make a hell of a case to like why, he's, why he deserves to be reelected because what we saw from Joe Biden was just the, the perfect rebuke to the Trump era. And it cannot be topped next week. Yep. But no, I agree with you that um, I'm actually kind of looking forward to watching the Republican National Convention. Uh, it's going to be funny at best. Uh, I'm looking for Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how they try to paint the country's narrative. But um, yeah, so what a great convention that was. Uh, you know, it was just really stunning to see, uh, especially though we haven't talked about this, but the roll call yeah. where they went uh, mm-hmm. to every state, all these common people who were really just looked like they were feeling the effects of all the crises we have today. They were, you know, true Americans living in the heartland. And it was just great to see them all come together to support Joe Biden. Yeah. And I mean, that's my final thought really. Besides the uh, amazing Biden speech, the second message that'll resonate with me from the Democratic Convention is that Rhode Island is the Calamari comeback state. So we've got that. <laughs> it's with the guy holding Calamari. Like, yeah, that was funny. But um, yeah, I was actually on that beach once. That was pretty cool. But uh, no, it was, it was fun. It was fun. That was uh, definitely good to see all those, all those states being, being recognized. But yeah, I, that was one of the best uh, Democratic uh, conventions I think they could have done in this situation. I don't see how they could have improved it to make it better at all. I just, I'm still in shock because it was just a great four nights all capped off by that amazing Joe Biden speech. So, I mean, maybe this is our high point. Hope maybe it all goes downhill from here, but it's looking pretty good. So, yeah, that's all I really have to say on it. I think we can wrap up now. All right. So, yeah, uh, I want to remind all our listeners to rate and review our podcast. Uh, Go down on the podcast app and click the number of stars you want to give it to us. And that would be great. And also, you know, stay safe, stay home and have a good one. Bye. Thanks. Thanks.